rags to riches to the mysterious $42 million man, John Henry Chalice. Hello and welcome to Urban Ambling. Makata here. Today we'll leave the Lands Department and uh, head westly downhill in uh, Bent Street and thence into Spring Street and in essence we'll follow the line of the tank stream to the south, turning left when you come to Pitt Street. Spring Street, uh, incidentally, is so named because in the very early years of European settlement, uh, there were, surprisingly, uh, springs in that area, which helped to feed the tank stream. But we'll walk today uh, in a southerly direction, uh, up Pitt Street and into Martin Place, and the tank stream, the line of the tank stream, flowed uh, across the present Martin Place, a little to the east of the cenotaph. Now, there's meant to be one of those markers there, but when I went looking for it recently, it wasn't there, although it must be said that all the pot plants were out for the, uh, the spring flowers, so maybe it's under that. But in any event, that's where it is. Now, if you stand near the cenotaph with your back to the GPO, uh, or what was the GPO, you'll be looking at a cross at a rather delightful building with a a sandstone facade, and that building is Chalice House. For reasons I'll say in a minute, I, I made a rough calculation of how often over the years I must have walked past Chalice House, and it would have to at least be 20,000 times and probably a lot more. Looking back, I, I certainly knew it was owned by the University of Sydney. I may have been vaguely aware that uh, a person called Chalice had left them money. I was certainly aware that some professors held the title of Chalice Professor within the University of Sydney, but I think I just thought that was some title of distinction. And really, it just was a nice building and I'd walked past it many times. But what changed things is a, a few weeks back, I was just flicking through a brochure from the University of Sydney and I saw a reference to the fact that John Henry Chalice in 1890 bequeathed to the University of Sydney a sum of money which was then about 250,000 to 270,000 pounds. There's different uh, references. But in any event, uh, what he gave then in today's money it would be $42 million. Uh, and it immediately struck me that, that I just knew nothing about him. Uh, and I thought, well, that's that's a very interesting line of inquiry to pursue because it was a, a very significant donation to the university and had a huge effect upon the university. Uh, uh, in terms of the old S Sydney-Melbourne rivalry, Sydney had always been the poor cousin to Melbourne, probably uh, because a lot of the early mining companies were based in Melbourne and there was a, a lot of money slashing around. But the the effect of this bequest from... John Chalice was to move Sydney up to at least equal with Melbourne, but I won't, I won't get into debates about uh, relative uh, strengths or merits uh, of those universities. So I decided I'd make some inquiries. And what's terribly interesting is we don't really know a lot about him. We know that he, he lived to be 73, having been born in the United Kingdom in 1806, and dying in the south of France 
on the 18th of February 1880. We know that he was in the colony in um, New South Wales for about 26 years, but realistically that's 26 years out of a lifespan of 73 years. So it was a significant but not a huge part of his life. Now, I firstly made some inquiries about Chalice House, and it's located on land that was resumed by the government in 1889 for the purpose of creating the first part of what we know as, as Martin Place, and the idea was to create a, an important and impressive public street, and in those days it was simply between George and um, Pitt Streets. Ultimately, the land came into the ownership of the university and they built Chalice House in 1906-1907 and it uh, was a building described, as I've mentioned before, I love these descriptions, I'm absolutely no master of them, but this building, and this does sound right, is described as a 12 to 13 storey reinforced concrete frame structure with 1930s Art Deco-style sandstone facades above a polished red granite base to Martin Place and to Angel Place, with a bronze-coloured mansard roof behind a parapet and a loft tower to the eastern end. It was at one point, and I, I think I am old enough to vaguely remember this, that the Government Tourist Bureau used to be on the ground floor uh, in that building. Now, the building is called Chalice House because part of the money from the gift by John Chalice was used to build it. As far as I know, I think it continues to be the, um, the ownership of the university. The only other clue I followed up was Chalice Avenue because I, up in Potts Point, running off Maclay Street, because I saw a reference to the fact that it in fact was named after our same John Henry Chalice. Uh, now, uh, he did indeed own land up there. That area of uh, Sydney in the early years uh, of the European years was called Woolloomooloo Hill, and it was divided into town allotments, and I'll come back to that word in a minute, uh, in about 1828 by the order of Governor Darling. Now, as I say, allotments uh, was a pretty... Uh, inadequate description because these blocks ran from where our current Maclay Street is right down to Woolloomooloo Bay. I mean, there were huge blocks of land. The area at the bottom of Chalice Avenue, when you walk down from Maclay Street to Victoria Street, and if you move a little to your left to the south, there's the McElhone stairs, which are one of three sets of old stairs which give access from the ridge down to the Woolloomooloo area. And that was originally granted at the time of the subdivisions to a Dr Henry Grantham Douglas, who was a physician in the colony. And it seems that at some point, uh, probably around 1850, John Henry Chalice bought that uh, area of land. The area where the McElhone stairs are, in fact, was part of Mr Chalice's land. And that land was still in his ownership at his death, and that was part of the value of the estate that went to the university. Now, can I just say at this point um, that if you want to go for a bit of a wander sometime, it, you could do a lot worse than wander down Chalice Avenue. I was there recently in 
the course of preparing for this and it was a delightful spring morning and Chalice Avenue is a very lovely street. I'm sure I must have been down it before at some stage, but I don't remember doing so. But it's a wide street. It's got centre uh, tree plantings. But there's some wonderful buildings and it's a delightful spot just to wander down, having a good look. And I should just add this at this point, because I made the discovery when I did this, that at the end of Chalice Avenue, when you come to Victoria Avenue, you can there gain entrance to what is known as Embarkation Park. Now, the park's, in fact, built on top of the car park, which was built for uh, Navy personnel, uh, and it's accessed from the the uh, road down the Woolloobaloo Bay, uh, but it's placed right up against the cliff of, uh, of the escarpment of Woolloomloo Hill. So the park doesn't have spectacular vegetation, but it's very pleasant. It's very large and it's got many uh, very pleasant walkways with nooks and crannies here and there. So it is a delightful spot to wander around. And, of course, the views you get and the angle of the views that you get is uh, are really quite delightful. So it's uh, well worth a wander around there. So coming back to Mr Chalice, yes, the Chalice Avenue is named after him as, as well as the house, although I couldn't find much detail in terms of, of him or, or why Chalice Avenue was used as the name, apart from the fact that he uh, did have a house on part of it. What we do know about John Henry Chalice is that he was he was born in England, as I said, in on the 6th of August, 1806, and he was the son of a, another John Henry Chalice, who was a sergeant in the 9th Regiment of one of the... Uh, British Army regiments. Um, it was said that he was educated at several schools and trained as a clerk. Now, that description doesn't suggest he had a very high level of education. It doesn't suggest that he had any university education. His father, being a sergeant in the forces, would have had a regular income, although it, it would certainly uh, not have been spectacular. We know then that he decided for whatever reason to emigrate to New South Wales and he arrived on the Pyramus on the 9th of May 1929 and it's significant to note that he came as a steerage passenger. He was just down and well and truly below deck. So all of that suggests he came with very little and didn't come with any family wealth behind him or nor did he have any great connection to the universities of that time. He fairly quickly obtained some employment with some merchants called Marsden and Flower, and he remained there for his whole time in uh, Sydney until he left in 1855. He was clearly talented because the firm in 1842 was reorganised and became Flower Salting and Company, and at that point, Chalice was admitted as a junior partner. There's no suggestion he paid any money, and the strong inference is that he was just very talented. So we can reasonably accept that it must have been from that point that he really started to make significant money. So between 1842 and 1855, when he sold up, he managed to accumulate a very considerable fortune. As I said, it was probably in 1850 bought up on Woolloomooloo Hill, where Chalice Street is named after him, which, of course, would have been a very 
pleasant spot to live because you were high, you had views back to where the the city was, such as it was in those days, and of course you were close to the harbour with fresh air and everything else. But apart from acquiring that significant home, he also acquired pastoral properties, and at one point he held licences over 12,000 square miles, and that's 31,080 square kilometres of rural property in southern New South Wales, and it was said that he had 3,500 cattle and 11,000 sheep. Now, I don't know much about these things, but that sounds like a pretty significant herd to me. Now, we know that uh, in 1855, he sold up his business interests and returned to England. He did come back for one short trip in 1859, but apart from that, he spent the rest of his life in England and principally in Europe, because it seems that he spent extensive time travelling in Europe and, in fact, died in the south of France in an area just between Monaco and uh, the Italian frontier. Shortly after he's left, he made his first contribution to the university for some stained glass windows in the Great Hall of the university. And then again, when he came back for his visit in 1859, he gave a further £700, which would have been a fair bit of money in those days, for the royal window and uh, in the Great Hall, and we'll hear a little about that later. But what's extraordinary is we don't really know a lot more about him. There's no portraits of him. There's no, doesn't seem to be biographies. There doesn't seem to be a lot of descriptions about what sort of life he led, apart from the fact that he obviously made a great deal of money. As I said, he died in France, in the south of France, on the 28th of February, 1880, and his body was taken back to England and he was buried in Folkestone in the south of England. Now, what was extraordinary from that point was that under his will, he made a provision for his wife, Henrietta, and they hadn't been married all that long. He also made provision for his sister, so clearly he was a kindly sort of bloke, and he gave numerous legacies, numerous gifts to to people, but in essence, the bulk and balance of his estate was left to the University of Sydney. Now, we have to recall, of course, that his death was um, 25 years after he'd left left Sydney, and he'd only uh, had that one visit back in, in those years, and yet for reasons we don't really know, he determined that the university was to be the receipt of his benefaction, and that didn't change, even though he spent all those years away. The only thing that gives us some glimpses about him can be obtained from a speech given at the annual commemoration of the University of Sydney in July 1880. And the address uh, was given, of course, by the then Chancellor, uh, Sir William Manning. And I just want to read part of what he says because it's terribly interesting because what's clear is, is this huge gift was a complete surprise to the university. They'd known about him. He'd given money on two occasions. They were significant gifts but not earth-shattering. But then suddenly out of the blue, for a man who'd last been in Sydney in 1859, 
1890, there's suddenly this huge sum of money coming to the university. And leaving out some bits here and there, here's what Sir William Manning said back in 1890. I have now to direct your attention to the great event of this past year. The surprise of the announcement was only surpassed by the splendour of the prospect which it opened up to the university. So large is the amount of Mr Chalice's gift that is perhaps no exaggeration to say that it is unparalleled as a private donation in the history of universities. And he then goes on with a rather complex comparison with a gift given by Earl Fitzwilliam to the University of Cambridge in 1816, but uh, I don't know that it takes us anywhere and we'll jump over that. And now this is what was particularly important, bearing in mind this is written and given in 1880, where he says this, and in our case, the gift is not that of a man of great hereditary wealth, giving a portion of his abundance to his alma mater, but that of a private citizen, not prominent in public life, and neither read in any university, nor standing in any special relation to that of Sydney, who he has given to it the bulk of an estate acquired by his own industry, intelligence and good fortune. Words fail me to express the full gratitude we owe to the gentleman who, under the guidance of Providence, has so splendidly endowed this university, or to picture to you the long vista of years of prosperity with their birth ends of golden fruits. And I just pause there to say I looked birth ends up. It was very hard to find, but it seems to mean burdens, as in the sense of you see those statues of Cornucopia where there's a, a great flowing out of produce. That seems to be the intent of it which this gift has opened to our view. If we reflect with fullness of mind on the beneficent revolution which this bequest will work in the circumstances of the university, if we cast our imaginations forward to the benefits it will confer upon thousands of future students and through them upon the country which many of them will adorn and Unexpected has been the change in the university prospects. We shall not fail if we are earnest men and women to be almost lost in admiration, gratitude and wonder. And at the point this is given, the university had learnt that the bequest was there, but there were still conditions to be satisfied, including the death of the widow Henrietta and she didn't die to the 19th September 1884 but it was obviously apparent to the university that there were no children and they would be receiving the gift. So what he goes on to say is the value of Mr Chalice's bequest will as we are credibly informed amount to scarcely less than £180,000 sterling and will if allowed to accumulate according to the testator's instructions as I shall have presently to explain, probably have become £200,000 when it reaches the university's hands. Now, what's fascinating, given that this is the Chancellor of the university, they've learnt that they're getting this enormous gift from this man, 
And it's at a point where if there was a lot that could be discovered about him, the university could have easily discovered it, and that could have been included uh, in St William's remarks. But what he says is that he didn't have any special connection with us or any university, and he's just given it as a gift to the place where he made his wealth. And going on, he says, Mr Chalice was, in his lifetime, one of the university's earliest benefactors, for it is to him that we're indebted for the erection, more than 20 years ago, of the great north or royal window of this hall, in which, at a cost to this gentleman of £750, are portrayed all the kings and queens of England, down to her present majesty, which, of course, would have been Queen Victoria. And this is the only only clue we really get about the, you know, the nature of the man. You know, what sort of person was he? He was a member of an eminent mercantile firm in this city, and in a large private circle, he was known as an unassuming, kindly and genial gentleman. He retired many years since and went to and resided in England until his death, but he has shown by his will that absence has not impaired that early regard for this university of which the evidence is now before us in this hall, and that his heart was upon the good of the country in which, in his more active years, he had drawn his wealth. It's rather a pleasant sketch, isn't it, that he was a a man who came here, something we've seen a lot with Mort and people like that. They came as young men. They came with nothing. They did exceedingly well. And here in Chalice's case, for reasons which none of us really know, he decided at the point that he left Sydney that that was what he was going to do with his wealth, and that didn't change in all those years. So an interesting saga, even if we don't find out much about him, but it's, again, an interesting insight to a part of the history of Sydney, and clearly uh, we owe him a debt because he certainly made a very significant change to the fortunes and the standing of the University of Sydney. Well, I think that's for me for now. Stay well, stay happy, make sure you give the time to have an amble, have a wander. As I say, Chalice Street, Victoria Street, Embarkation Park, you could do worse than spend an hour or so wandering around there. So until next time, all the very best and cheerio. Cheerio.